0: And will you turn in your Bibles, first of all, to the New Testament letter, the first New Testament letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, I'll be reading verses 1 through 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, before we turn to our sermon text in Luke 24, the first 12 verses. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth by the Spirit, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And now we come to our sermon text in the Gospel of Luke 24. I'd like to back up to the end of chapter 23 just to give us another taste of what has just taken place. Let me begin at verse 50 of Luke 23. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared and They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, and as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna And Mary, the mother of James. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles, but these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Amen. let us pray heavenly father we thank you for this marvelous message from your word and we ask that you would apply it to our hearts and to our minds that we might leave here rejoicing in the great things that you have done in the person and work the life and death and resurrection of our lord jesus christ in whose name we pray amen Somehow, in the sheer unfathomable grace and goodness of God, the time-space fabric of this created universe managed to hold together that previous Friday afternoon. All nature absorbed the incredible shock of Christ's death. The Christ, remember, in whom all things hold together... and somehow we survived. The sun darkened that Friday afternoon. The sun was shining again. The moon and the stars all remained in their proper courses. Clouds still passed by overhead. Birds still sang in the trees. The world hadn't come to an end the day Jesus died on the cross, which, when you think about it, pretty surprising the world and the created universe did not blow apart at the cross but in fact the story actually gets much better much better it was springtime April in fact and all around Jerusalem spring flowers were starting to make their appearance in the fields and along the roadsides By the gracious restraint of the triune God, the created universe wasn't all reduced to ashes that Friday when for the sake of lost and ruined sinners, God the Father actually withdrew his eternal favor toward his beloved, only begotten son. His son who became at that moment our sin bearer that moment when God the Father expended and exhausted the full weight of his holy wrath, not on us, but on Jesus. Somehow the world went on, and people went about their business. For Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus with him, that meant the hasty retrieval from the cross and wrapping of Jesus' dead body. It meant carrying that dead body to a niche in the nearby garden tomb that Joseph had previously had cut out in the rock for himself. The Sabbath's going to begin at sunset. Already the sun's very low in the western sky, and so they have a need for speed as they do this. As for the faithful women who'd come along the way, all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem with Jesus and the twelve, they're standing there looking on from a distance that evening. They're looking at the deposition of the dead body in the tomb. So together they see the tomb, together they see where and how the dead body is laid. And then having made a careful mental note of it, they go home and pack the spices and perfumes necessary to finish this hasty burial, to finish it properly, if they could. But that labor of love would have to wait until after the Sabbath. After the Sabbath had passed in quiet rest and repose, which is what the Sabbath is all about. So on the Sabbath day they rested, according to the commandment. But then once that seventh day had passed, without wasting a moment, early on the first day of the week, before sunup, in fact, these women leave their respective lodgings, they rendezvous somewhere together along the way, and together they make their way to the tomb. They're on their way there because, at least in part because, they had heard nothing about the Sanhedrin's arrangement with Pilate actually to place an armed guard there. If they had heard that, they might have uh, been a little timid about this. It might have changed their plans. But he had, in fact, stationed a guard there. The women knew nothing about an official seal, probably something of plaster or mortar, being placed on the stone. But it was. Their biggest problem, as they see it, as they're making their way from their homes to the tomb, their biggest problem is, so who's going to roll away that stone for us once we get there? That's the only kink in their plans, as they see it. Getting access to the dead body, so that they can finish the, embalment, the embalming of it. And the sun's just starting to come up as they arrive on the scene. They are at the tomb. And, of course, you know the rest of the story. By the time they get there, the guard has been scattered. The seal has been broken. And that stone they were worried about along the way, their one problem, turns out not to have been a problem at all because they get there and found the stone already rolled away from the tomb. That's what they see when they walk up on the situation, and they're thinking, oh, what a relief that is. That's something we don't have to bother with, but now they have another problem. All these sweet-smelling supplies that we brought along with us to anoint a dead body that... isn't here. It's not here. Go on in. Have a look for yourself, Mary. You too, Joanna. Go on in. You see if you can find him. We know it was here 36 hours ago, late Friday afternoon. We saw them put the body here in this very tomb behind that very stone. And now the stone's over there on the ground, the tomb standing wide open, and the body of our Lord Jesus Christ is gone. And as Luke tells us in verse 4, they were perplexed about this. They were perplexed about this. Beloved, I want to talk to you today about the perplexity these women experienced that morning because it's such a common experience even among professing Christians to be perplexed to be at a loss to be at our wit's end whenever God's mighty deeds of redemption and providence place themselves athwart our uh, preconceived notions and expectations We're perplexed. Things aren't turning out the way I expected. God acts marvelously on behalf of his covenant people, and we're perplexed about it. God does wondrous things, and we doubt. We're mystified. We are flummoxed by what God is doing. Even people who love him, as these women obviously loved him, Now, that perplexity might have been expected among God's people perhaps 15 centuries earlier, back at the Red Sea, for instance. Miraculously parted, you remember, to give God's now-freed covenant people under Moses a way of escape. Perplexity on that occasion might have been expected. After all, this was something altogether new to them. Just a moment ago, the water of the Red Sea was going to be the anvil on which the hammer of Pharaoh's army was going to crush us between the army and the sea. And then all of a sudden, it's not there. The water's not there. The water's heaped up on both sides of this broad boulevard going through the heart of the sea. God cleared a way for us to pass through, redeemed us from certain death. I suppose there would have been a few people there on that occasion who were a bit perplexed about that. Or think of the Assyrian army, 185,000 strong, surrounding Jerusalem in the days of King Hezekiah 700 years later. Just last night, here we are starving behind the walls of Jerusalem, shut in by the Assyrians. An army of 185,000 hostiles surrounds us. They're ready to breach the walls of the city any moment. There's absolutely no way out. And that night the Lord acts to redeem his people, a people hopelessly entrapped. And when they awaken the next morning... 185,000 Assyrians lay dead in their camp. That clear and present danger, which was undeniably there the night before, early the next morning is gone. It's not there. Some perplexity might be excused when those people of Jerusalem awakened that morning to find themselves suddenly delivered. Because virtually no one was expecting it. They were expecting the opposite. And biblical examples of these unexpected deliverances might be multiplied. Think of Isaac, for instance. Isaac, as he lay there bound hand and foot on his father Abraham's altar... The knife in Abraham's hand. Helpless. He's helpless. There's no way out of a situation like that until God intervenes in a completely unexpected way. And dear ones, of course, the the Old Testament doesn't begin to exhaust the narrative accounts of God's miraculous deliverances. The New Testament opens with the Gospels, and there in the Gospels we discover that all through the Old Testament, if we can put it this way with all due reverence, in the Old Testament, God was just warming up his mighty hand and outstretched arm. There's not so much as a bead of sweat to be seen on his holy brow. Redeem his people? As the New Testament opens, he's just getting started just getting started and yet these particular women on this particular morning are at a loss to explain the situation they're perplexed and they're perplexed only because they're forgetful they're forgetful women The mighty deeds I've just listed might have sparked great surprise and great perplexity among those who were saved by them, but why were these women surprised? Why were they perplexed? And when you think about it, why, for that matter, had they come to the tomb with spices and perfumes that morning to anoint a dead body at all? And I'll tell you why. It's because despite their obvious love for him, they are nevertheless forgetful women. Forgetful of all the wonderful things Jesus had so faithfully, even so recently, taught them. So as to prepare them for this very morning. And so, hastening to the aid of these several damsels in distress, these forgetful women hastening to their aid, come these two facilitating angels. Facilitating in the sense of helping. They're there to help. They're there to prompt them, even to coach them. Luke refers to them in verse 4 as two men in dazzling clothing. But very clearly, these aren't ordinary men. These aren't even especially dapper, well-dressed men. Their clothing, Luke says, is bright as lightning. That's what it means. Dazzling. Bright as lightning. Like other messengers of God we read about in the Bible whenever God sends them, they appear in the form of men. But in fact... They are ministering spirits sent by God either to announce something brand new, for instance, a virgin birth, or in this case, to remind us of something not new, to remind us of something we should already know, something we should already be acting upon, something we should have been able to recollect on our own. That is the the gentle condescension of the great and mighty God who in the words of Psalm 103 verse 14 himself knows our frame and remembers that we are but dust. This is the forgetful women's gentle reminder from heaven. It's gentle, and yet it's not without a distinct and probably uncomfortable edge to it. Because these two facilitating angels, men sent to help, clothed in lightning, they actually chide these women, don't they? Chide them not for their love, chide them not even for their female sentimentality, chide them for their amazing human capacity to forget. Even to forget strikingly memorable things. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Remember these things. Remember what he's been telling you repeatedly ever since you confessed him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was way up north in Caesarea Philippi, 15 chapters ago. And if you remember that on the third day he rises again, if you remember that, as he told you repeatedly, if you remember that on the third day he rises again, then why are you here on the third day? Why why are you here in a cemetery? What are you doing in a cemetery? Well, the point made by these two facilitating angels is well taken by these forgetful women who now suddenly remember the Lord's words. Return to the 11 apostles and those with them. And report to them what it was they'd just seen and heard. He's not there. He's risen. Just as he said. Just as we forgot. He's not there. Now the Gospels give us very good reason to believe that these women. Who've been following Jesus over the course of all those years and all of those miles. These women are not excitable ninnies. They are not simpletons. They are not idle babblers. In fact, they are not even your everyday run-of-the-mill women anymore. They're not. Because these women have been around Jesus. They've seen him. Heard him, knew him, loved him, served alongside him. What a sea change that daily exposure to the person and work of Jesus had produced in their lives and in their personal bearing as women. Whatever they may have once been, by now they have become sober-minded Truth tellers. All of them, each of them, by the transforming grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ, these women have become faithful witnesses. And so they find the apostles and they tell them the sober truth. But as we can easily imagine, they tell it with such obvious bubbling over excitement. That Their words appeared to the apostles as nonsense, and they would not believe them. So these forgetful women receive the help of the facilitating angels to jog their memory. And they remember, and as they do, the whole counsel of God begins to fall into place in their minds. And the good news, the gospel, is no longer just an assorted jumble of random facts and inspirational teachings and bits of history. Now it all comes together. Now it makes sense. Perfect sense. All that Jesus said and did makes perfect sense now that he's risen. With the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit, that final piece of the puzzle has fallen into place. It's come together for them. But their story falls on the ears of faithless apostles and a faithless church. That's the sad but true meaning of the verb that Luke uses here in the final clause of verse 11. Epistun. They weren't believing. It's a continuous sense. They weren't believing steadfastly. As a body of young men who should have known better, they weren't believing. Beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ is now risen from the dead. Just as he said, And his bodily resurrection in glory isn't attested by just two or three witnesses, which would be enough to certify it as evidence in a court of God's law. It's certified by many, many more faithful witnesses besides eyewitnesses. The Apostle Paul makes this superabundance of eyewitnesses absolutely clear to this troubled, wavering church in Corinth where some were actually doubting the doctrine of the resurrection. And he tells them, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I received. These are the principal points of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. They're in the first century. They're still alive to interview if you want to. Most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely Born, he appeared to me also. Dear ones, the, this growing polarization and implacable conflict that our whole interconnected human culture now suffers at this point in history. It's nothing more or less than the predictable fruit of a tree poisoned by the soaking up of unbelief in the risen and reigning Jesus Christ. As John the Baptist said, the axe is laid to the root of that tree, that unbelieving tree. If humanity entertains the hope of a bright future, our options come down to one we must repent of our unbelief in Jesus and his resurrection and his reigning whenever this or any culture refuses to hear eyewitness eyewitnesses on this vital point of the resurrection, whenever it cancels opposing views, whenever it censors those with biblical viewpoints that are crying out to be heard, that culture has simply gone off the rails of rational discourse. That culture has returned to the days of the judges when there was no king in Israel. And everyone did whatever was right in his own eyes. And but for the saving work of this risen Christ, our King, that's where we are today. The plain historical fact is, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Single-handedly, he's broken the power of sin and death and hell. And you can forget everything else if you will. Everything else in life and the world and the created universe is ancillary anyway. The Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. Remember. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we bow before you because we see again on the pages of your scripture the mighty wonders that you have done on our behalf. You are glorious. You have always been glorious. And our regret is only that our lives are so short that while we are in these bodies in this fallen world, we have only so many years to proclaim your glory. How glad we are, though, that you have in the gospel pointed us beyond these threescore and ten years we have here to an eternity with you and to a coming day when we too will be raised up with Christ. No longer in the heavenlies, but to live upon the good redeemed restored new heavens and new earth wherein righteousness dwells thank you for setting that hope before us thank you that we can today live in the light of that glorious hope and thank you that we on account of the resurrection of our lord jesus christ two thousand years ago we are assured that these things that lie ahead of us are not a pipe dream the solemn promise of you who do all things well and with whom nothing shall be impossible. Be glorified among your people, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.